welcome to the sermon podcast of Redeemer Anglican Church of Franklin, Pennsylvania. Through every sermon, we hope that you are encouraged by the Word of God and the redeeming grace of Jesus Christ. To find out more about our church, visit our website at franklinredeemer.org. Father God, we just thank you for your blessings, your mercy. We thank you for your grace. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit, that we would be more and more secure in your gospel, rooted in you, and that you would just give us encouragement, give us hope, give us peace, give us security, give us whatever it is that we may need, and just open our eyes to perceive you more clearly and our ears to hear your soft voice um, declaring our forgiveness. I ask this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So our passage that I want to focus on today comes from Galatians 2, um, 17 through 3.3. I'm going to read it to you. It says, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the flesh, or by works of the law, or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So in our epistle lesson, we have some very strong words from St. Paul. And I think these strong words are dealing with a situation and an issue that has been challenging the church since its inception. There's been debates and splits. There's been denominations and movements all wrestling with and trying to figure out this idea of how does one become perfected? How does one become holy and righteous? And throughout history, this this concept, this idea of Christian perfection or Christian maturity by theologians was often referred to as sanctification, which is the reality of being made righteous, to be free from sin, to be holy and pure or set apart. And even though all of church history, you see debates and battles and trying to wrestle through how this idea of sanctification ties to this other theological term, justification, in about 25 minutes, I'm going to solidify all of it, clear it all up, and give the definitive word on it. Um, So pay close attention. But see, the problem is, is that the question begins to arise that if one is justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, 
by the gospel alone. Which Paul argues throughout this entire epistle to the Galatians. You have to ask, what do we, have, what do, we do with the fact that in the midst of that, we're still all completely jacked up? We're a mess. I mean, how do we respond to the continued call of Scripture of Christ himself that we must live a life of holiness and obedience to God's design? I mean, some strong words from our Lord that says that we are to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. And as a priest or pastor or elder, it's where anxiety starts to set in. No matter how rich and gospel-centric your theology is, all of a sudden you start to get a little bit nervous and anxious because if we only preach the gospel of free grace, how do you motivate and lead people to a life of holiness? Attention's always there. And the problem is, is when that anxiety sets in, our often natural tendency is to move to the reality of the law. Because the law has two things to motivate that we've learned to trust in. It's the carrot and the stick. There's got to be some special reward for obedience or some threat of punishment. Because as a pastor, if I just keep preaching grace, aren't people going to just continue doing whatever they want? The reality is, is that, as we see with St. Paul, he anticipates that. In the retort that we just read. But many theologians, as I said, have called it sanctification. In some traditions, they call it Christian perfection. Some of us speak of spiritual or moral maturity. But the early 17th century English Puritan John Owen called it the mortification of sin. I mean, like, that's a Puritan way of saying it, right? I mean, like, mortification of sin. But I love that book. I read it many, many years ago. It was really impactful for me. But in the book, Mortification of Sin, John Owen depicts the Christian life as a fruit tree. It's a powerful image. And he said that trying to perfect ourselves, trying to remove sin, is like trying to remove fruit from a fruit tree. Picking apples off the tree. Each individual sin being a different apple. And the reality is, is that if you work really, really hard and are really frantic, it can appear like you're making progress at times. And then all of a sudden, new fruit just starts popping up. Whenever we moved to the, uh, to the wilderness of the north country, we, uh, we bought some property. We have acreage. And then on the acreage, we had a bunch of apple trees. I'd never taken care of apple trees. One thing I learned as I read about taking care of apple trees is that, one, you have to prune back all the growth to focus energy on apples. But if you want those, like, really beautiful apples, like the kind of apples that, like, win you prizes at the county fair, like, if you want those type of apples, what you do is whenever, whenever the apples are just starting to pop, you pick off about half of them. So that then all of the energy go to the remaining apples. That's how you get like really big, beautiful apples. And no one says that 
trying to gain perfection through reliance on our own ability of moral transformation will end up like that. You pick off some, and then other ones end up just bigger. But then his answer, I think, is quite profound. He says, see, the only way to deal with the fruit of sin is to not pick off individual fruits, but to lay acts to the root. But in the midst of that, one must ask the question, what is the root, how is it cut, and how does the tree regrow? And those are the three things I want to briefly look at today. So first, the root. I mean, when, when you don't know the heart of an issue, you're always going to find insufficient remedies for the issue. It's kind of like treating a headache not knowing that it's caused by brain cancer. And to know what the root of the issue is, we have to go all the way back to the very beginning. Going back to Genesis. I'm sure most of you at least know a semblance of the story. Adam and Eve, they're in the garden. There's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They partake of that tree, they're tempted, and then they fall. But one thing that I think is important for us to remember and to notice is that Adam and Eve did not fall because they just really wanted to do bad things. Right? Adam wasn't like, I want to do drugs and listen to rock music. Like, no, like, it had nothing to do with, with actually anything that was necessarily wrong. It was because they wanted knowledge they weren't supposed to have. The knowledge of good and evil. And actually, if you think about it, how many of us would actually see that as something bad? Because the scriptures don't depict this knowledge as false knowledge. It's the knowledge of good and evil. But then scripture makes it clear why this was so destructive. It said that in gaining that knowledge, they would be like God. They weren't okay with being special, beloved, contingent creatures. They wanted autonomy, self-rule. They wanted to be able to determine for themselves. They wanted to be their own gods. We see that at the core of the fall had nothing to do with moral or immoral activities. It had everything to do with wanting to take the throne of God's sovereignty so that they had a level of control themselves. And there's two fruits that you see playing out throughout all of history. I mean, it's played out in so many different ways, but that desire of God-like power and control, you can, if you study human history, you're just going to see it play out over and over again. But there's two primary fruits that I think fall off of that tree of Adam and Eve. They seem like opposites, but they're actually two sides of the same coin. It's legalism and licentiousness. Legalism says that our justification, our holiness, is based on our ability to keep a set of commandments. But what's interesting is no matter how fundamentalist one might be, no matter how strict and legalistic one might be, legalism always leads to a diminished view of holiness. Because within legalism, if it depends on your ability to keep the law, you can't have the standard of being perfect like your father is perfect, so you have to lower the standards of holiness to the level that you can keep. 
And usually what happens within legalism is then we, do, we focus on those things that we have more control over, which are the external sins. It's really hard not to hate. But if I focus on the fact that I don't murder, it's all good. We focus on, on not looking at certain things and not doing certain things, but we ignore our, the, the, the reality of the sin of pride and arrogance, of jealousy and envy. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has a lot to say about that. But the thing is, is that even hypothetically, if we can maintain the most stringent of moral requirements, just pretend that, that somebody is able to achieve that legalist ideal, it would ultimately feed the heart of Adam. That we are entitled and capable apart from God. That we have achieved the knowledge of good and achieved it ourselves. We don't need God, because we can do it. And then you have licentiousness, which means a complete disregard for the established rules of the day. And this is acting out of the Edemic heart as well. Because in many ways, it's becoming our own law. But what's really funny about licentiousness is no matter how progressive or licentious one might be, wanting to tear down the old law and the old structures, whether they be biblical or societal, they always end up becoming legalists. Because you create a new law. And through that, we feel justified and righteous. And then we have to condemn those who don't acknowledge our new law. And then when we don't keep up to the new law that we created to destroy the old law, then we get a new scarlet letter thrown on our chest. Excommunicated and cast out. But see, the problem is, is not the, the, the external morality or any of those things. The deeper issue it's the issue of the heart. That's why Jesus said, clean the inside of the cup first and the outside will follow. Why in John 14, 15, he said, if you loved me, you would keep my commandments. For a long time in my Christian walk, I used to see that as like a threat. <laughs> kind of like, listen, boy, like if you love me, then you'd be doing everything I tell you to do. And he's like, oh, I got to prove I love Jesus. No, like Jesus is just doing really good anthropology here. He's just saying this is the very nature of humanity. If you loved me perfectly, you would obey me perfectly. The issue is your love. And once that's fixed, your obedience will follow. St. Augustine said something beautiful and powerful. He, he said that the sum whole of our Christian perfection is to love God and do whatever you want. It sounds radical, but it's so true. Because he said, in perfection, we will love perfectly. And if we love God perfectly, then all we will want to do is please him. And so our pleasure will align with our obedience. It's a beautiful thing. And see, so the reality is, is that if our perfection could come by our own effort, if it relied on anything within ourselves, through our picking of different fruits from the tree, it would just allow more nutrients to 
to build up new fruit of pride and arrogance and self-reliance. And so the root is the heart. But then the question remains, how is it cut? Or in other ways, what cuts it and who wields the axe? In our epistle today, after proclaiming this radical idea of God's free grace offered through faith alone in Christ alone, Paul anticipates this response that would probably go something like this. But if one is declared righteous by the gospel of grace alone, wouldn't that enable people to continue to in sin? And he preemptively responds to the question, knowing that it's in the mind of his readers, by exclaiming, certainly not. Or by no means. It's actually just an idiom from that time. It'd be kind of like today's, like, heaven forbid. In a letter to the Roman church, Paul does the exact same thing. He writes, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Certainly not. And we see in our epistle that Paul reminds the Galatians of the gospel. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. Meaning, my punishment has been paid by his punishment. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And he does a very similar thing in Romans. Pointing them back to the gospel. See, is the gospel that is the axe that cuts at the root. Because while the gospel destroys our guilt and shame, it also forces us to relinquish the false sense of God-like control and autonomy. Our life is not our own anymore, but it is rooted in Christ. It forces us to let go of the apple our ancestors grasped for and lay hold of the gracious hand of Christ. See, isn't that beautiful? If, if our ultimate issue is not that we do bad things, but because we want to be autonomous from God, then the only solution is not fixing your act, but having to let go of self-reliance and rely completely on God's grace. Flipping it all. See, because the gospel is good news that Jesus paid it all. Every single bit. And it's the good news that even our perfection is rooted in him and not ourselves. That it is all grace that we are then left utterly dependent upon God and God alone. And as we live out of that reality, what scripture calls a life of faith, we begin becoming truly human because we are living in complete trust and dependence on God's faithfulness. And then Paul goes on with harsh words. He says, you fools, who has bewitched you? Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? This is what's radical. It's even the cutting at the root with the gospel is an act of grace done by God. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. Paul to the Colossians writes, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. 
How did you receive him? Scripture says it's by the work of the Holy Spirit and the proclamation of the gospel, bringing us to our absolute recognition that we need to fall on our face and rely on his mercy. To recognize that, God, if you are not the good and gracious God that you reveal yourself to be, then I am screwed. Because I can't fix myself anymore. And St. Paul says that how we began is the rest of the Christian walk. It's a life of continual repentance and recognition of God's absolute grace and mercy in our, our dependence upon him. The Holy Spirit imparting the gospel to us through word, through sacrament, through community, through others around us, drawing us back again and again to the gospel. And you know the irony of that question, that fear of preaching too much grace, well, that just let people sin? Let me tell you guys something. You don't need grace to sin. We've always been allowed to sin. That's why we're in the mess that we're in. You don't need Jesus to die so you can sin. We've been free to do that since the garden. What we need grace to do is in the spite of our sin to return back to God. So if you use the gospel as a means of running from God, you don't need the gospel. You can do that anyways. You use the gospel as a means to run back to God even though you're as jacked up as you are. It all comes back to that. And finally, how does the tree regrow? The tree regrows by establishing new roots within the fertile soil of the gospel. Rooted in Christ. And this rerooting is done by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so I'm going to pull a Paul here. Because some of you have to be thinking, so I guess there's no role for me to play in this. And I will respond... By no means. (laughs) Certainly not. See, we are participants. But as participants, we are not masters of our perfection. It doesn't depend on us. But instead, we're enabled to live into the reality that God is doing through his spirit, a reality that is already ours by grace. So I'm going to finish with three practical things I think we can do in our participation. And I'm going to be a good preacher here. There are three R's. The first one is release. Letting go of the fallen temptation inherited from Adam for control. Whether that be releasing or letting go of your attempt to fix yourself by heaping guilt and shame on yourself. Letting go of the attempt for self-justification by creating a simplified law you can keep and then shaming others for not keeping them. Releasing the attempt to be your own law. Adopting whatever ideas of what it means to be human that are vogue today and rejecting those antiquated ideas disseminated by Scripture. Releasing that pressure to prove to God that you are grateful for His grace by trying desperately to appear to be that perfect Christian you think everyone else is, but you secretly know you aren't. And so it's releasing. Releasing control. And realignment, putting yourself in the position of continual realignment with the truth of the gospel. Constantly and regularly evangelizing yourself. 
reminding yourself that you are already justified, you are accepted, you are beloved, you are forgiven. You've been purchased. Reminding yourself of that reality that you are far more messed up than you think you are. And yet far more loved than you could ever imagine or dream. But I don't know, if you're, if you're like me, I'm really bad at evangelizing myself. Just the other day, I was talking to my, my son. I was wrestling. I was beating myself up with some stuff. And he overheard me talking to my wife, beating myself up. And he's like, Dad, remember what you told me last week? And I'm like, yeah, I know, son. But then in the back of my mind, that little voice is like, yeah, that's true for you. But, you know. but no, it's like, but the reality is, is I preach the gospel every Sunday. And in every pastoral counseling situation, I remind people of the gospel. And when I screw up, I heap law on myself. We all struggle to evangelize ourselves, and that's why we need community. That's why we need the church. To be a place where we're constantly evangelizing each other. Reminding each other of the truth of the gospel, even in the moments where it's hard for us to believe for ourselves. And then finally, ritual. Ritual can be a bad word. Probably getting nervous because an Anglican priest is talking about ritual in a Presbyterian church. But ritual can be bad. And it's gotten a bad name for, for a good reason. Because ritual for ritual's sake can be very, very destructive. But what I mean by ritual, I mean an indo- adopting regular practices that habituate us into the reality of the gospel. I remember a little while back talking to, to my counselor. And I was telling her, I was like, counseling doesn't work. Because it hasn't fixed me. I'm like, I'm at, it's actually worse. Because now, because of counseling, I know what I'm doing, and I'm aware of it. I just can't stop doing it. It was was actually a little bit better whenever I was ignorant. You know what I mean? But I was joking with her. But the reality is, is why is that? Why why are we like St. Paul? Sometimes we do what we do not want to do, but do not do the thing. You know, there's too many do-dos in there. But, like, we get in that place, and it's just like... I know what I'm doing and I can't even stop it. Why? Because we've had our entire lives being habituated into a fallen, perverse, and corrupted reality. Since birth habituated into these things. And similarly, we need new rhythms and practices that habituate us into living out our new position as beloved, forgiven, graciously accepted children of God. To break down the habituation of insecure, broken individuals in a perverse society so that we can be habituated into being beloved and redeemed citizens of the kingdom of God. And that's where the value of of spiritual disciplines, it's the value of the liturgy that reminds us over and over again of the gospel, of meeting with each other for prayer and for study. It's not that those things in and of themselves produce righteousness, but those things do rehabituate us into reliance on the gospel, which is what perfects us. But we must remember the same grace that has justified us is the same grace that sanctifies us. 
We are declared righteous by grace through faith in the atoning work of Christ. And we are made righteous by that very same reality. Our forgiveness, acceptance, and perfection is a work of the Father purchased by the Son and manifested in all who belong to him through the Holy Spirit. It is all a gift of grace and not dependent upon our fallen ability and our frail flesh. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for upcoming sermons and consider joining us in person for Sunday worship. To learn more, check out our website at franklinredeemer.org. Thy free grace.